Hi, everyone. I'm John Cannon. We're delighted to have Mary Nichols and Ann Carlson with us this afternoon to talk about clean air in Los Angeles, the state of California, and the nation. This discussion is the second in the series Place and Power, sponsored by the University of Virginia's program in law, communities, and the environment, PLACE, and by the Virginia Environmental Law Journal and the Virginia Environmental Law Forum. In this series, we explore connections between human place-based relationships and the law and politics of environmental governance. I had the pleasure of working with Mary Nichols when she led the nation's clean air programs at EPA during the Clinton administration. That position is just one of Mary's leadership positions that have made her among the most influential environmental regulators of a generation. Mary is now the chair of the California Air Resources Board, which administers the state's air quality programs and the state's signature AB32 climate change program, the most ambitious and sophisticated program for reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the world, I will say. Mary has served on the board under no fewer than three California governors, including under Governor Jerry Brown for both of his terms, and has been indispensable to the success of AB32 and the cleanup of California's air. Ann Carlson is the Shirley Shapiro Professor of Environmental Law and the Director of the Emmett Institute at the University of California at Los Angeles. She is a distinguished law teacher and scholar, author of many articles on air quality and climate change, a leading casebook on environmental law, and the recent book co-edited with Dallas Bertraw on lessons from the Clean Air Act, building durability and flexibility into US climate and energy policy. Anne is now at work on a book on her beloved LA's successful efforts to clean up its air and the combined energies of politicians and regulators and innovators and plain citizens in bringing about that signal success. Mary's and Anne's discussion will be moderated by my colleague, Mike Livermore, who is the Edward F. Howery Professor of Law here at UVA Law School. About halfway through the discussion, we'll move to questions from our audience. So those of you who are viewing, please post your questions for Anne and Mary on the Q&A tab that should show up on your screen and we will pick them up from there. Thank you again, Anne and Mary for joining us. And thank you, Mike. Great. Well, thanks very much, John. Um, it's such a delight to have Anne and Mary here for this um, conversation. We're looking forward to a, a really interesting conversation. Again, I, I want to encourage uh, participants in the audience to type in questions in the Q&A, and then uh, we'll get to those um, in the second half of the conversation today. So the, the topic of, uh, of, this, um, of this conversation is one of the kind of traditional questions in US environmental law, especially which is the role of states and the federal government and localities uh, in shaping environmental governance. And there really couldn't be two better positioned folks to help us kind of illuminate this question over the next uh, hour or so. So Mary, just to kind of get us started, your career has spanned all three levels of government. You've represented cities um, when, you, when you first got started uh, in environmental law. Um, you obviously have, 
played a huge role um, at the state of California and you've uh, been a regulator at the federal level. So you've seen the question of environmental federalism from all sides. So one question is just given that you have so many kind of cooks at the pot, um, what are some ways that having the, these, these multiple regulators, this multiple level governance involved in making environmental policy helps move the ball forward? How is it productive for actually getting results? I think the best answer to that is to uh, underscore the uh, continuing dialogue, sometimes conflict between the different levels of government over how to uh, go about approaching the problem of pollution, while at the same time recognizing that the public demand for cleaner air, regardless of whose job it is to provide it, has never flagged throughout all of this period in good economic times and bad and around the country, if anything, the public uh, insistence that uh, they be provided healthy air and that whoever it is who's responsible for doing something about it, do their job, uh, has only grown over time. It's sometimes a little disappointing, actually, to realize that you know, people my age who lived through some of the worst days of smog recognize how much progress has been made. And I even get thanks from strangers sometimes at parties and so forth. But for most people who've come here in the more recent years uh, or who are, you know, just growing up, um, they don't think the air is wonderful. They think it needs more work and they just want to push me and the local air district and the feds to do whatever it is they could be doing to to fix that problem yeah but it's 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 an interesting point on the kind of increasing demand over time so that you get this increased demand while things are getting better now have you found that that's a is that a source of frustration is it problematic that we have have kind of don't notice that the air has actually got that we don't recognize the progress that's that's been made or do you, do you see this as largely a positive thing that you know we keep on demanding I think think it's only positive. Uh, First of all, um, the fact is that the science keeps on identifying adverse effects at lower and lower levels. And that's not something that we can do anything about. It's just, uh, I mean, except ignore science, which some people would probably prefer that we do. But um, assuming that we care about um, actually understanding the impacts of this stuff, um, we now know that even at very low levels, there still are effects effects on uh, pregnant women, on fetuses, on aging people, you name it, we can find the effects. Now, maybe if we looked for, uh, you know, didn't, didn't look again, we would just feel fine. But I think that uh, people also, as they become accustomed to any particular um, level of uh, clean air, um, take it for granted. And they don't understand why anybody would want to make it worse. They, they can frankly can't believe it, that when they hear that there are rollbacks going on or, you know, efforts being made to deregulate. And at the same time, they see that there's new technology, there's a uh, a new ethic out there, uh, particularly, I think, in the generation that's rising up about uh, people's relationship to the planet. And so um, they're going to keep pushing us. And honestly, it's a it's a great thing. Great. so, Anne, you've, um, you're working on a book right now on, on air quality in L.A. that kind of relates to some of these themes where, uh, at least my understanding, is that 
folks don't appreciate the extent to which air quality has improved in LA. And, and LA has something of an undeserved continued reputation for being a smoggy, dirty place. It's true. So I think Mary's right on the one hand that it's a good thing that people demand cleaner air. But I guess what frustrates me is that people don't fully understand what an extraordinary job government has done to get us to where we are today. And so, you know, I thought I would just give you a few statistics just to um, let people sort of understand just how bad the air quality was. Mary moved to Los Angeles, I think, in 1970. Is that right, Mary? Right, right around then. I grew up in Los Angeles, so I was a 10-year-old in 1970. So I have lived and breathed Los Angeles air for most of my life. Uh, just to put things in perspective, in 1970, when the Clean Air Act passed, Los Angeles had 240 days that violated an air standard that was almost double what our air standard is today for ozone. And on 220 of those days, we had what were called smogglers. We had a stage one smoggler, 220 days of the year. The air quality was about 300% worse on those days than what the federal standards call for today. On 135 days, we had stage two smog alerts, 500% worse than what we're supposed to experience. And on nine days, we had what were called stage three smog alerts where all industry and driving was supposed to stop. And this was just a regular part of our background. A couple of other stats, I'll try not to get too wonky here, but um, lead is another um, really good example. So kids in the 1970s, because they were exposed to lead that deposited on surfaces, after it was emitted from the tailpipes of cars, had blood lead levels that were about a thousand percent higher than blood lead levels of kids today in Flint, Michigan, who've been exposed to lead in their drinking water. That was just average. African American kids had lead levels that were double um, white kids' blood lead levels, which were already extraordinarily high. There are um, social scientists that have pretty good evidence that violent crime has. Um, been reduced as a result of the reduction in lead in uh, in the atmosphere and background air. That's because of the Clean Air Act. Just uh, again, to put it in perspective, in the 1970s, we used to violate the lead standard by 50 times the current standard. So it's just poisonous to live here. We violated carbon monoxide standards 366 days of the year and a leap year. I mean, it was crazy, crazy dirty. And so I do get frustrated that people don't understand what it took to get our air to today where, for example, in 2018, Los Angeles County, which is part of a bigger air basin, had one ozone violation. We had nine violations in the whole uh, basin for fine particulate matter, and we didn't violate any other standard. When we do violate ozone standards, which we do far too much, I don't wanna suggest that, we've, that we're done, but when we violate those ozone standards, it's at levels that are not much above a very tough standard to meet. And a lot of that pollution, a lot of the background ozone is actually naturally occurring. I think the big thing we now need to worry about is what Mary is at the helm of doing, and that is um, not just cutting greenhouse gas emissions, but preventing the deterioration in our air quality as a result of climate change. So we're getting worse ozone days because of hotter temperatures. And of course the wildfires are creating horrible particulate pollution that isn't even something that air agencies have ever had to deal with before. What do you do with, you know, how do you stop fires from creating the kinds of air problems we have today? But I do, I do think people should understand that under the leadership of people like Mary Nichols, California and the rest of the country has really done an incredible job cleaning up our air and producing incredible health, health improvements as a result.
Yeah, great. Well, thanks, Anne. So, so just kind of, kind of moving, bouncing off of that. Um, I mean, it's an enormous amount of progress. It's just demonstrable nu numerical progress that has had enormous influence on people's lives. I tell my students, if they think they're smarter than their environmental law professor, it's because they grew up, grew up when the, uh, there was less air, lead in the air. I and, too, for what it's worth. <laughs> so, um, so one question is just what lesson do we learn from this? So, so Mary, as you've observed and been part of this environmental progress at the, at the state level in California and LA specifically, what lessons do you think we can draw kind of going forward for environmental challenges in the future, but also for national regulators, thinking about this discourse this, that you were describing between the state, the local, and the federal level, what, what can the feds learn from um, progress that's been made in California on, on these issues? Well, you mentioned my stint at um, EPA during the Clinton administration, which was immediately following the passage of the latest round of updates to the Clean Air Act amendment that added uh, a bunch of new provisions, including the acid rain provision and a requirement that areas that had really bad air quality had to implement programs to inspect and require maintaining of automobiles. A whole new generation of vehicle emission standards came in. And when I went back to DC, uh, at, at the time I was uh, working for the Natural Resources Defense Council when I was appointed uh, by the president, um, I spent my four years uh, in office there mostly, not completely, but mostly replicating things that we had already done in California. Um, the lesson of that is that um, states are able to try things and pioneer in ways that the federal government can't. And um, the, the need to balance and to, uh, and to negotiate among the states that come from very different uh, geographical and different uh, energy resources, different uh, political uh, situations at any given time um, is, is a huge issue for the federal government. It's very, very difficult to do a national program and have real um, equity uh, around the entire United States. But I, I think the, the lesson is that um, this is an area where, because it's about public health, um, concern comes from from the bottom, from the people, uh, and filters its way up to the national level uh, rather than the other way around. And the job of the federal government, I think, primarily at the behest of the regulated community, frankly, uh, is to find a way to uh, supply that need and at the same time create some kind of a reasonable regulatory environment that will encourage innovation but not produce a complete uh, a complete backlash yeah that, I mean it's a it's it's a really it's an interesting thought of this kind of this bottom-up process and then the kind of particular role of the federal government um, in in creating some rationality maybe out of out of, out of, a, of this kind of bubbling up that you get at the state and the and the local level 
Well, so, everybody, I'm sorry, just to, to yeah, complete the thought please. here, um, you know, when, when uh, people are angry about what they think is a failure of their local government, they come to the state and demand that we act and that we insert ourselves in the process and take over. This happens all the time with toxic waste cleanups, for example. If the state isn't doing its job or isn't seen as doing its job, then they go to the federal government. And when the first big Clean Air Act was passed back in 1970, that was the situation in this country. And um, ever since then, there's been, uh, you know, some back and forth, I think, over time. But uh, ironically, we're back at a point now where people perceive that the federal government is the one that isn't doing its job. And so there's more of a uh, movement towards giving the states and the locals more uh, authority, more autonomy, and putting on the pressure to uh, get more action on cleaning up the air coming from that level. Yeah, this has certainly been a huge development in the last several years as the as states have been asked to take this leading role. So maybe for, for both Anne and Mary, just given this kind of the current state of affairs with respect to state-federal relationships um, on environmental policy, I think a lot of folks would agree that we're not at a high point of collaboration and cooperation between the states and the federal government to uh, achieve environmental goals. And so just, you know, looking forward, what do you think needs to be done to reestablish um, what might be a more productive relationship between the states and the federal government? Well, Anne, why don't you start with that? <laughs> uh, how political should I get here? Um, I mean, we you don't need, endorse candidates. <laughs> we need a federal government that believes in environmental protection, that believes we need to be doing something about climate change, and that believes, as virtually every other president has believed, that California has a really important role to play in that. So, you know, the battle over California's ability to issue tailpipe standards for greenhouse gases and for zero emission vehicles shouldn't be a battle. This has been an extraordinarily successful experiment, having California have special authority to regulate, again, often with Mary at the helm, um, and not just with cars. This is with um, all sorts of off-road vehicle engines, boats, all sorts of things. And it's been an extraordinarily productive relationship because as Mary had previously said, when it works, the rest of the country can follow our lead. When it doesn't work, they don't have to. So I like to point out sometimes that California has its initial zero emission vehicle program was not a, a, an incredible success. There were significant problems with it. The state ended up having to roll back some of the requirements. It did probably lay the groundwork for the development of electric vehicles and hybrid technology, but it was expensive and it didn't spread to the rest of the country. That's okay because that's part of this experimental kind of base that we have that I think was a really visionary move by the authors of the Cleaner Act. Actually, the California exception came before 1970. So we need, a, we need a federal government that believes that environmental protection is a top priority and that respects and understands the role that states can play. Um, you know, without that, it's really, for me at least, hard to see a path forward. I'll let Mary jump in now. <laughs> well, can we reaffirm the relationship or can we have a a reset and, and start on a better footing uh, with the federal government? Uh, yes, of course we can. It's always possible. Um, the state 
really can't do its thing without the backdrop of uh, national ambient air quality standards. We have the ability to set air quality standards uh, at the state level. It's in our, our state uh, legislation that created the Air Resources Board. Uh, but that's a long, slow, painful, costly process. And um, it's been done, but very, very rarely. Uh, generally speaking, we rely on the federal government to set the basic level of uh, def definition, really, of what clean air is. Um, certainly, when it comes to the problem of global warming, which is as it says, a global problem. Um, we need the United States government at the table in the international arena uh, to advance our interests and to promote our ideas and technologies. I think people uh, sometimes forget that the basic architecture of the existing uh, Kyoto Accord uh, came from uh, came from America, came from the U.S. Uh, in the international climate negotiations. And even though our country never was able to implement the program the way it was originally intended, um, the Europeans, uh, China, uh, New Zealand, and others have picked up those ideas and actually are uh, advancing them and, and elaborating on them. So um, the fact that we could be uh, taken over or overtaken by the federal government in this area would be terrific. It would be devoutly to be hoped for. Uh, and so we not only wouldn't fight it, we would be doing our best to try to help make it happen. Um, the other side of this equation, which you uh, mentioned earlier, is the relationship with local government. And again, although the state has the uh, program and the I think is the right level to be setting the emission standards for vehicles and um, and related standards for fuels, for uh, regulating the electricity system. Um, local governments are increasingly stepping up to the plate and adopting their own climate action plans and putting air quality and equity into those plans and moving forward at using their own authorities over their streets and highways and uh, building permits and so forth to uh, to push for uh, a better environment at the at the urban level and when you have mega cities like uh, Los Angeles um, they have not necessarily all the financial resources, but they certainly have the uh, political and intellectual resources to take on a project like that. Great. Um, so we have- yeah, Can I just, can I just yeah, go, one, one other thought here? So one thing to keep in mind in a time when the federal government is pretty hostile to um, leading on the environment, uh, the history of the Clean Air Act really shows that localities, California and the federal government have been extraordinarily important. California hasn't always led. So just let me give you two examples. Um, Mary was involved in the first one. So um, the Southern California area was supposed to prepare a state implementation plan after the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970 um, and refused to do so. And it refused to do so in part because it was virtually impossible to show how this, the area was gonna come into compliance with the Clean Air Act without basically shutting down. Um, I think Mary, one of Mary's very first cases, and I think that either the first or the second case ever filed under the Clean Air Act was representing some of the eastern cities in the district 
demanding that the federal government get involved and issue a federal implementation plan, um, to, in part to put pressure on Southern California. It wasn't until 1997 that the South Coast District had a um, approved, federally approved um, state implementation plan for ozone. Um, one other battle also involved Mary when she was in, in the um, EPA when uh, Clinton was president, and that was she referred to the inspection of maintenance program. So this was a newly enhanced requirement in, the, in um, 1990, and particularly polluted areas really had to kind of step up and improve the smog check program. That's probably what you're all familiar with, with it being called. And California really dragged its feet, and um, EPA uh, got very close to um, to uh, sanctioning the state, and then the 1994 earthquake hit in Northridge. The sanction would have been the withdrawal of highway funds. Um, so there are these battles that are really interesting, where the federal government really is the leader, and California's recalcitrant. And I think it's the dynamic of these three bodies: the the, lo the locals, the state, and the federal government that gets played out in other states too. This is not unique to California. It is something that's made the Clean Air Act so powerful and so important. And so having federal leadership again to clean up our air and to focus on climate change, I think is just imperative. Yeah, and I think one of the, the points that, that Mary raised earlier is kind of relate, I think relates to this is just the, the, the diversity of states, right? This, there's, a, there's a lot of you know, the states are different from each other. We have, a, we have a diverse political culture, we have diverse geographies, we have diverse pollution problems. And, um, and one of the, and we have diverse polities in, in, in many ways, right? And, and there are kind of, regardless of who wins the presidential election, there are, we have deep divisions in our political culture. And as, as both of you know, it takes a long time to address uh, uh, environmental problems. It takes consistency. It takes stability in your policy regimes. And so one of the, the challenges in the, in the next decades is just building the kind of sustainable pressure that if you look at the success of the Clean Air Act, that's part of the story, that there's different pressure valves, and, but there's always some point of pressure. Um, so going forward and thinking about you know, the, the next generation of environmental problems or the current generation, uh, climate change and the like, um, how do we build those kinds of sustainable structures or the sustainable pressures um, in light of the, what seems to be quite deep political divisions over environmental issues? So I don't think there is such a huge division uh, if you can get people to sit down and talk about the goals. Uh, and if you can create a system where you allow for quite a bit of flexibility in implementation, but put in place a set of goals which are uh, pretty much untouchable. And part of the genius of the Clean Air Act was it did that. It's true that the national ambient air quality standards have been uh, tightened a couple of times over time, but those changes are relatively minor and not uh, tremendously um, action forcing. Uh, the, the fact that the standards were there, that they could be seen by everybody, that they had a strong uh, technical and scientific basis to them, and then that um, there were requirements to try to attain those standards 
gave industries and entrepreneurs and investors, as well as the environmental community, something to aim for, something to uh, argue about the means, even argue about the timing when it turned out that they weren't attainable or couldn't or seemed to be too politically difficult to attain, as has happened several times uh, over the course of the Clean Air Act. But it still kept everybody moving forward. And I think that really is the right recipe. Um, I, I worry about the increasing desire on the part of legislators and uh, members of Congress as well to say they can't delegate any authority to an administrative agency because you were right that it takes a long time to pass legislation, more so at the federal level, certainly than at the state or local level. But still, sometimes you hit a, a problem that isn't, you can see that something isn't working. And rather than tear down the whole system, you need to deflect a little bit, which is what we've been able to do in California, as, as Anne pointed out, when we tried something that didn't work quite the way it was planned. Well, I would just add um, two points. One is one of the reasons that um, we got strong federal legislation on the Clean Air Act and when the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970 is because people were fed up with pollution. They could see it all around them. They could feel it in their eyes and their lungs. It was visibly ugly. And even the business community in Southern California understood that terrible smog was a threat to economic prosperity. And so there was a lot of pressure because people could feel it. Um, and I think one thing that's really happened in the last really only two or three years is that, is that as the effects of climate change are being felt on the ground, the politics are changing. So of course, you know, here in California, we're experiencing record wildfires, what 4 million acres of the state have burned. So far this year, we're hoping that today is not a terrible fire day because it's very dry and hot and there are worries that winds are gonna kick up. We're experiencing drought, of course, hurricanes are more intense flooding, sea level rise. I mean, you name it, people can see it. They can't see it as frequently as you could see smog, at least in Southern California, those 240 days of the year. But I think that's had a huge effect. And I think the other the thing that is, is going to drive change at the federal level is people who are a lot younger than I am. So watching the rise of the Sunrise Movement and people like AOC and others who are young and energetic and mad and demanding change is I think the best thing that can happen to Congress because Congress hasn't felt that much pressure on climate change. Felt a lot of pressure, you know, something like a hundred million people showed up for Earth, Earth Day in 1970. Um, we don't have that kind of public pressure on climate change. And there's some reasons for that, right? A lot of the effects are gonna be felt long in the future. There, um, You don't see it in the sky in the same way that you do smog. But I do think that this sort of the rise of young people demanding action and shaming older people, which I think is appropriate for inaction, is really key to the politics going forward. Only other thing I will say is that um, I, I agree with Mary in worrying about overprescription in federal legislation and you know a lack of an ability to delegate. It's important to note that the Supreme Court is a, is potentially a big problem here because five members of the Supreme Court have suggested that they don't like delegation to administrative agencies. EPA is gonna be right at the heart of that. And I suspect, although we don't know, given the way that questions get asked and answered in Supreme Court hearings, that there's gonna be a sixth member of the court who is gonna be interested in reviving the non-delegation doctrine. So 
a lot to watch for, but Congress also may have no choice but to be very prescriptive if it's worried about what might happen um, if, if the Supreme Court weighs in on the constitutionality of legislation. Yeah, so, so this directly raised a, a question that came in um, from one of our participants. And I just want to kind of remind uh, folks who are watching that if you have a question, go ahead and, and shoot it in uh, using the Q&A little button at the bottom of the um, uh, of the screen, and we'll get through as many of them as possible. But just getting to this exact, we've had a question along these lines of what about kind of the, the future of the of the court and how that might affect um, environmental law and the ability of federal agencies to, um, I think, kind of be effective going forward. So what? So just to kind of put a finer point on this, um, to take uh, air quality specifically, and, and perhaps even in, in the air quality improvements in California and LA. What, for folks who aren't necessarily familiar with this, what are some ways in which the EPA has used its delegated authority, its ability to kind of make decisions under relatively broad provisions of the Clean Air Act, and has exercised that uh, that flexibility um, in ways that have been productive, that have led to environmental progress, or that have reduced costs, or have otherwise just kind of um, uh, been part of the story for how we make environmental progress? Well, I can think of a couple of different ways of addressing that question. Um, the first thing that pops to my mind uh, when you raise the question of using delegated authority to do something that Congress may not have thought about or may not have been able to grapple with, um, I think about the work that we did in the Northeast with the help of the states, uh, with the urging of the states uh, with ozone transport, where you've had this alliance of states that have worked together very effectively now for two decades, really, uh, to control the precursors of smog upwind uh, for the benefit of people downwind. And the negotiations that uh, EPA presided over and uh, encouraged and nurtured uh, and pushed uh, over, over a period of years uh, to make that happen. That was a kind of creative stitching together of regulatory authorities with the help of the of, of those who were most affected, the states, uh, that uh, could have been done perhaps through legislation, but it would have been very difficult to have negotiated that out. And there were states that were not happy about it. And eventually, uh, you know, there was litigation over it. But at the end of the day, the agreement held. And so we've had a situation now for quite a few years where power plants uh, have uh, made a contribution to the control of nitrogen oxides uh, that was beyond what was needed to meet the air standards in their own uh, jurisdiction, but that was necessary to deal with a regional problem caused by the, the reality of, of transport. So I think that's a, a very good uh, positive example. Uh, another example, which um, somewhat ironically, I think has not been uh, contested, is what happened with the inspection and maintenance program, which is a, a story unto itself. But there, Congress attempted uh, basically uh, because of frustration on the part of uh, some regulators uh, at the federal and state level with their inability to put in place a, a robust inspection system for in-use automobiles. They wrote an extremely 
prescriptive provision into the 1990 amendments, which turned out to be politically impossible to implement. And during my period there, as Anne alluded to, California was at the head of the line of states that were in rebellion. Now, it turns out that in addition to the politics, which were real, there was also a pretty strong technical argument that California was making that before this legislation was actually uh, in effect, they had been requiring the use of onboard diagnostic equipment to be placed in new vehicles, which was capable of detecting violations without having to take the cars through an elaborate uh, system, put them up on a dynamometer, et cetera. And so they were uh, making the case that this was a, you know, it was unjust and unreasonable and simply wasn't going to work. At the end of the day, I'm not going to take any more time of this. There, you know, state by state, we ended up finding ways to work out compromises so that we found states in compliance and did not have to uh, punish anybody for their violations of that provision of the law. But it was a very painstaking uh, process, and it could only have been done if you had a regulatory agency that had both the technical knowledge and the will to um, keep pushing forward to get the benefits of this program without having to actually apply every single provision of the law as it was written. This is a great example because, you know, it's so in the weeds. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm embarrassed to even but, but, tell the story. Talking about dynamometers. It's right. <laughs> but it's, but it's, this is exactly where progress gets made. And, you know, we talk about non-delegation. We folks talk about non-delegation and, and that Congress should be more prescriptive. But there's these pathologies that can arise out of it. And it can take years and a lot of work and really in the weeds to to. To fix those things, so um, so it's, a, it's Michael. A, can I jump yeah, in with a couple examples too? So just to extend Mary's ozone transport example, um, so in addition to EPA playing a really key role in getting helping states who already had relationships work regionally to solve what was a regional problem, not an individual state problem, um, EPA also was crucial in allowing for the development of a cap and trade program. In, in to, to regulate ozone pollution. And it's been extraordinarily successful. I know cap and trade can get um, dumped on, but, but the extension of the original Ozone Transport Commission to really half the country now and controlling NOx and, and other emissions has been really extraordinary. And really because of the combination of state cooperation and federal leadership. Let me give you one historical example. So when the Clean Air Act passed in 1970, one of its provisions required uh, tailpipe emissions from automobiles to be cut by 90% in a very, very short period of time. And uh, William Ruckelshaus, the late and great William Ruckelshaus was the administrator of the EPA at the time. And he, um, he really put the auto company's collective feet to the fire, if that's the right expression. Um, the car companies claimed the technology didn't exist to meet those standards, but actually embarked along with some other companies in a very extensive R&D program to develop the, cap, uh, the catalytic converter. But at the same time, they sued Ruckel's house and sought an extension of the deadline to meet, uh, to meet the, the 90% the cut standard. Um, Ruckel's house lost in court. So you know, if you, if you have an environmental case book, you'll read that case potentially. Um, but he did something that people don't pay very much attention to. And that is that California wanted to be the guinea pig. 
So at the time that the auto manufacturers are getting the federal government to extend the deadline, California comes in with a waiver request saying, let us come close to meeting the standards. To do that, we're going to require essentially the outfitting of all new cars to have catalytic converters on them, something auto manufacturers said they weren't ready for, couldn't do, there were going to be all sorts of problems. And Ruckelshaus did not cave into extraordinary pressure to deny the California waiver and said he granted it. And California then went forward, lo and behold, the catalytic converter worked. It's, it's probably the greatest environmental invention ever. And it was a great use of the federal government leveraging power, California being willing, right, and being a leader, but the federal government being there to take advantage of this interesting kind of structural dynamic that showed the rest of the country that catalytic technology in fact worked and now it's standard on cars around the world led to in, in part to a lot to the probably ease the banning of lead and gasoline because catalytic converters couldn't use leaded gasoline and Buckles House also required gas stations to provide unleaded gasoline. Um, so it, again, these kind of interesting structural arrangements that the Clean Air Act um, brilliantly included, whether it was intentional or not, can be used by very effective administrators and regulators, I think, to, um, you know, to play different interests off each other and so forth. Yeah, great, that's a great example. Um, so just to kind of take another um, audience question, takes us in a slightly different direction. Um, but um, so the, 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 the idea behind the question is that there's obviously a very close link between air quality improvements and climate change. And there's, there's two, right? There's the co-benefits of reducing fossil fuel consumption, which reduce greenhouse gas emissions, as well as uh, local air pollutants. But then, Anne, you also mentioned the ways that climate change are exacerbating um, uh, air quality problems with respect to ozone and then, um, and then fires and so on. Um, and so one question I think is, is it a little bit about the politics of climate change? And, and the question is whether um, we ought to be accentuating these, the kind of local immediate air quality benefits associated with greenhouse gas emissions reduction policies and the like um, as, the, as a way of kind of building and maintaining political support um, for actions that ultimately are beneficial on, on, for climate change, but also for, for local air quality. So, so that's the question I'm wondering, either one of you or both have, have reactions to that. Uh, my reaction is yes, of course. Um, in any kind of um, political situation, you have to look to meet people where they are. And if there's one thing that people understand, it is that um, local air pollution affects their health. Um, there's also a growing movement in the direction, uh, as we've seen this past summer, of recognizing that environmental protection and health are better in some places than they are in others and that uh, communities of color, low income communities are really disproportionately impacted, not only by pollution, but also by uh, uh, the pandemic that we are still uh, in the midst of uh, with COVID-19. So uh, these issues are connected to each other as is the uh, discussion about a recovery. And um, I think that we're gonna see this really coming to a head uh, when we finally get to address the issue of how to rebuild our economy. Uh, it will be a discussion, I think, that will feature a great deal of emphasis, whatever terminologies people choose to use, whether it's build back better or green new deal or something yet 
not invented in terms of slogans, but regardless of the slogan, the, um, the, the policies are going to be uh, looking at ways you can borrow at now practically free money uh, levels of interest uh, to invest in communities and do it in ways that will both benefit local health and also uh, deal with the, with the greenhouse gas emissions at the same time and do it in a way that's more equitable than, uh, than what we've done in the past. Couple of additions. So um, California, maybe 10 years ago, Mary will probably know the year, had an initiative, this was during the, the, the last great recession, had an initiative on the ballot to essentially repeal AB 32 it had it was tied to unemployment rates and so forth. And the um, opponents of the initiative who were in favor of climate change regulation ran a campaign that pretty much never mentioned climate change. The entire campaign was based on um, health benefits from cleaner air. So it's just it's just interesting that I mean I think today because the effects on the ground are more felt, it's uh, it's easier to talk about the health consequences of the climate change. But at that time. They still felt a little uh, hypothetical, and so the air quality benefits were really, really important. I think the other place where we see this is in, in cost-benefit analysis, Mike, something you've written a ton about, but the, um, you know, the co-benefits or um, multiple benefits, whatever you want to call them, of regulating greenhouse gas emissions can be justified financially in part by huge benefits in reductions in particulate pollutants and so forth. So I think tying them together is smart and key and good politics and also makes a lot of economic sense and I'm sure we'll see more of it. Great. Yeah. So if you, once you have that confluence, there's, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to say no. Um, so, so to kind of, again, changing gears a little bit, um, thinking about um, the role of technology and government at multiple levels in, in promoting technology. And I guess, you know, we, we, we have a moment, as you both mentioned, um, given the kind of economic realities that there will likely be a substantial amount of public investment happening at the federal level. Some of that might be directed through um, states or through, through localities. Um, at, so, so I guess the, the question very generally is, in light of that investment, but also more generally, what roles do kind of states or localities have in this technology forcing um, or technology promoting um, role. So, Anne, you mentioned catalytic converters, a huge, uh, important technology. California's played a major role in, in improving um, automobile fuel efficiency over the years. Um, but just more generally, do you think that that's a particular place where states and localities have some value? Um, and, and if so, you know, maybe what, what could we anticipate in the coming years? We're in a period of tremendous um, enthusiasm and innovation around electrification uh, with 40% of the emissions in California and maybe closer to 30 uh, in some other parts of the country coming from our transportation system. We see that in order to tackle the problem of climate change, we are going to have to make really big inroads and do it pretty quickly. And the good news is that the manufacturers of the uh, vehicles, including, uh, I want to stress this, not just passenger cars and, you know, exciting uh, electric, uh, uh, you know, 
cool cars, but also trucks and heavy equipment are looking at ways to get to zero emissions using batteries or fuel cell technology. The manufacturers are committed to this because they believe it's where their future lies. The uh, suppliers of fuel in this case, hydrogen or electricity are committed to this future. And what they need are uh, some policy boosts and some financial assistance in many cases to make the necessary changes in infrastructure primarily. Um, you can uh, provide, uh, you, can, you can offer exciting electric uh, vehicles, but if people don't see them out there and they don't know where they're going to be able to charge them, this is going to be a harder sell than if there's a combined effort to roll out uh, charging and have the vehicles available at the same time and a, and a unified message uh, coming in. Not everybody is 100% on board. Uh, the oil and gas industries are still pretty much uh, trying to run PR campaigns to show that terrible things will happen um, if we uh, don't let them keep doing business the way they are doing right now. But I think they've already lost the battle in the court of public opinion. So, so two other places where we might see states and localities pushing technology and purchasing power. So I, I think fleets and, um, and so forth, you know, local governments can buy electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles. They can do a lot with, electric, uh, with um, LED bulbs and that sort of thing, showing that there's demand. States can do the same. And so that's just one place where I think um, pushing sort of uniformly is, is possible. Um, although, of course, the finances of localities right now are really dire. Um, I, I, one other place to give California a shout out, and that is a really obscure um, part of our pollution problem, but actually it turns out a really big part of our pollution problem are what we call small off-road engines, or the acronym is SOAR, I'm forgetting the R. Um, this is mostly lawn mowers, leaf blowers, um, chainsaws, etc. It turns out that around now, 2020, 2021, those engines are actually going to pollute more than passenger automobiles do in the state of California. Um, and that's in part because California's regulated cars so intensely. Um, and, it, and it's been a bit harder on the kind of lawn equipment side. And of course, we have a lot of lawns in California and they need cutting year round. And we don't like to use water because we have droughts and so we have leaf blowers and all sorts of things. And, and CARB is now in the business of really trying to push for fully electric um, SOAR equipment. It's pretty easy now to get electric kind of resident stuff if you're sort of an amateur gardener. It's still harder to get a really powerful electric um, leaf blower or lawnmower if you're a commercial gardener, but we're pushing in that direction. That's all state regulation. It's all it's because of California special power, but um, but it's coming at the state level, not at the federal. And it's it's really important, even though most people pay no attention to it except for the sound of leaf blowers, which are. That, that just on that example, if I could just jump right, in, sure. one of yes. the things that happened with the uh, with the gardening equipment after there was a, a big backlash on the part of uh, professional gardening services is that local air districts began to run buyback programs where they took public money, relatively small amounts, but still it was public dollars that they used to um, offer people a cash incentive to turn in 
old polluting equipment to buy new clean equipment. These programs help to demonstrate that you could um, make progress towards attainment of the air quality standards. So it was important from the regulator's point of view. Uh, and uh, they were tremendously popular. Yeah. Um, and, and an example of how you just have to get into the weeds sometimes to, to address environmental um, problems. So um, we're running a, a, a towards the end of our time together, but I wanted to ask one, uh, maybe a kind of a lightning question um, before, before we wrap up. So this just has to do with um, how interest groups uh, positions have changed over the years. So Mary, you mentioned automobile companies weren't necessarily uh, cheerleaders for uh, you know improvements in fuel economy or making a transition and have come around, or at least some of them have come around. And I'm just wondering if um, either locally in, in LA or more broadly, where you've seen um, prior opponents kind of see the light and come around and become uh, actively uh, active participants in, in achieving environmental uh, improvements. Uh, well, I'll just cite one example, and that is um, the uh, ethanol, the corn ethanol industry, which has sued California repeatedly over our low carbon fuel standards, alleging that they were going to discriminate against out of state uh, growers and manufacturers of uh, alcohol fuels. This is a battle that went on for decades, and you know we're still having problems at the national level with the renewable fuels standard uh, and debates about it, its merits completely. But um, they have now become uh, convinced that our approach, which was not to specify the technology, but to set up a program where there were life cycle. Um, evaluations for all kinds of alternative fuels and credit given based on their uh, being able to demonstrate how much better they were than a baseline of petroleum uh, actually has worked to build that industry and build demand for their product in California. And so um, they have indeed become allies and fans of the, of the program. The green tech industry in California has been pretty instrumental too in you know, defeating bad ballot initiatives and so forth. I, I think, I don't know, Mary would know far better than I do, but I mean, it, it feels to me, at least as an observer of this, that the support of the green tech industry has been pretty instrumental in pushing California climate policy and, and being a, a counterweight to oil and gas, for example. We've, we've created a whole economic ecosystem here around green technology because of our strong standards. And that has not gone unnoticed by other states and, uh, and other countries um, that you can actually do well and do good at the same time. Well, that's a, if there's any lesson that we can learn um, from California's experience, I think that is a good one. So thanks so much, Mary and Anne, for joining us today. This has been a very productive conversation, an illuminating conversation, and even has left us with a little bit of hope. So uh, I think that's a, uh, that's a good thing. So, uh, so again, thanks very much. Um, and uh, I guess we'll wrap up. Thanks to all of our participants. Thank you for your questions. We unfortunately couldn't get to all the questions, but um, I think we got some good answers. So um, I hope Thank everyone you. enjoys the rest of their evening.